she's always been the type of person that just says things and she just speaks her mind. I guess that has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. Welcome to episode 39 of The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And this is James. And this is a bit of an emergency episode for us. We've only ever done one before. And I think that was when Nick Kyrgios popped off (laughs) in Montreal last year, right? Why? Is is something going on in tennis? Nothing at all. (laughs) I know. It's like really the most boring week ever. just had an episode. And it feels like 10 episodes worth of stuff has happened since. Yeah, I mean, some of us don't have time for all this. It is work to keep up with all this drama. I spent most of my days off just glued to Twitter. Because Monday, as I'm terming it in this episode, Manic Monday, was just unreal. You know, normally I say that too much time on Twitter is bad for the soul. But Andy Murray was so bitchy and really just... (laughs) killed me and sent my soul to heaven we were watching tv trying to catch up on our shows thought we had a nice little two three hour block <laughs> <laughs> to watch some because we need like large blocks like that because we watch so much tv right? as you know if you listen to our tv episode and you're like oh my god did you see what andy Murray said and then five minutes I'm later like, lord jesus five minutes later more and then again so let's just jump right in james my man what do you want to say? Do, the, what? <laughs> That's how Andy addressed Daco to start oh. <laughs> it. It was so good. So I am more than happy to admit when I'm wrong. Okay. Which is generally actually not true at all. But I'm going to admit being wrong because I I feel that I was slightly misinformed about the extent of Djokovic's comments. Mis- misinformed? Mm. Well, uninformed. Okay. All right. That's more <laughs> Yeah, accurate. thank you for the distinction there. <laughs> I hadn't really read all of that. I thought I had, uh-huh. but I didn't I didn't cover everything. So I actually would have been a lot more harsh. I was commenting mostly on the hormones and so we're talking, talking about, about how he respects women and all his this. His press conference after he won Indian Wells. Right. Now what I didn't totally understand and you pointed out to me later is that he actually pivoted unsolicited. He wasn't prompted to, and started talking about equal prize money and said that since men generate more spectators, more money... Remember, and, we've been through this before where folks say, you don't have an opinion for yourself right, until I inform that you. you. You're just informing my entire worldview, <laughs> which is so true. I'm so put upon <laughs> and so dumb. <laughs> so... I have to say, I was really horrified and embarrassed because I really would have gone much harder. It really wasn't that bad. No, it's not like I gave him a pass. No. But it was just so shocking to me that he went from being asked about Raymond Moore's comments to then talking about equal prize money. Without A, having explicitly denounced or addressed Raymond Moore's comments. Mm -hmm. And then shortly thereafter, within the first paragraph if you're reading the transcript, to then pivot 
to equal prize money. It was the unforced error of the millennium <laughs> in tennis. Right. And the reason it was so bad, and it's surprising to me that there are reasonable people out there who aren't willing to criticize him. Because he's gone, he's actually arguing that we should pull back reforms that have been made in tennis, right? He wants to turn back the clock to a time when men and women were not paid equally at slams. And he didn't say slams specifically, but that, I imagine, well, these that's are what the meant, inferences right? that we're forced to make because so much of what he said didn't make sense upon right. first read. But women have worked so hard over the past 50 years and more to achieve equal footing in tennis. And we're still not there. But at the slams, they're paid equally. And so when you're saying that men deserve equal prize money, you actually would like to claw back some of those victories for women? I don't understand. I just don't get it. Well, what he said was that men deserve more, and then women deserve more, and we should each fight for getting more. Right. And that's something that I want to talk about later. Okay. This sort of separate but equal thing, and that these fights are, are not related and not the same. Okay. So let's... Can I uh, stick a pin and save that for later? Sure. So we also heard Roger Federer's comments. That we knew he was going to be asked. Well, this is what's going to be happening the next few days, right? Everybody's going to be asked about mm -hmm. Djokovic and Raymond Moore, one after the other in the lead up to the tournament. And so we've still yet to hear from Rafa. By the time you're listening to this, he may have already spoken about it. Um, right. We may have to jump in and record a little extra. <laughs> So far, we've heard from Novak with the original comments that set things off. And then he offered an apology of sorts on Facebook before heading into the tournament. Yes. Well, I guess in between then, too, he also had a stop on the Ellen DeGeneres show. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, and in that, what I think is a non-apology, he essentially reiterated what he had said previously. There was nothing new or apologetic about it. It's this thing, this strange thing where your comments are problematic, which if you're apologizing, you're trying to clarify the follow-up statement should then do just that. And it didn't. Right. For me, at least. And, and the fact that you're just going to say, I believe in equality for all. I mean, show me how. how. Well, how does that work? Yeah. You I mean, you can't just say it. And you, you're not going to back that right. up. Right. You can say that you believe in equality in spirit or in theory, but also have no interest in actually doing the work that helps to achieve equality what know? does it mean when you say we all have to fight for what we deserve <laughs> well it's to me this is well this is very common in the atp it's a very anti-collectivist sentiment it's extremely individualistic you know and uh maybe it's one of the reasons there's no drive for unionization <laughs> in tennis I, I get that if you're thinking within the atp He's bringing in much more revenue than Stakovsky is. Okay, <laughs> right. I know. Let's bring. Sorry his name that he's up like again. the whipping boy, but he always just pops up. Right. So I don't understand how women fit into that dynamic. Um, I'm not. I'm very confused by it in general, and it's it's a very annoying apology because it's. I apologize if my words were taken the wrong way. But he doesn't clarify how they should have been taken. I do think there's something to be said for the whole euphoria and adrenaline bit. Like you, you're get you're getting asked this, you know, big topic right after you score oh, yeah. a really big win. Yeah. So you know, a lot of people have pointed out that 
you know, maybe we should give him a pass for having to answer this right off the bat, whereas Federer has had, and other players have had, multiple days to prepare a response. Right. And to be fair, there are times when we are not fit to record a podcast. No. There are things that we've cut out of a podcast that I would be so embarrassed to be going out to the, well, hundreds of people who listen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was going to say like the millions. <laughs> but it, it happens, uh-huh. you know. But we are not number one in the world. We have not been dealing with this issue for years. Well, yeah. And we, we were not on the training. site where this issue was swarming. Serena was able to speak about it about the Raymond Moore comments right after her finals loss, which happened before Novak even took the court. Mm. So presumably he had even more time than Serena to address the issue. My perspective is, if you claim you are for equal pay in tennis, this is not a question that you should be fumbling so badly. Yeah, it's just not that hard. It's not. It's very easy to to denounce what Raymond Moore said. Uh, getting on your knees and be thankful like come on mm-hmm. that's pretty universally outrageous and it's also easy to just say that denounce it and leave it at that nobody's asking about equal prize money we're talking about equal prize money this week mm. mostly because Djokovic fanned those flames <laughs> basically <laughs> yeah know? this is the uh, the genesis here and so if I'm him this follow-up Facebook apology should just have said I'm sorry that I offended people with the things that I said I am for pay equality, period. End of story. Yeah. Because unless you have like a coherent kind of policy message to share, just leave it at that. Right. You know. And this is not to say that the the issue isn't without nuance. And I think where a lot of these players are getting tripped up is that you can say, okay, I believe men and women should be paid equally. But the way tennis is structured and the way it is now, it will take some doing for that to happen. Because tournaments right. are owned by different people. There are various tournament directors. Uh, the, the Grand Slams pay equally. There are certain joint events, the top tier events that pay equally. But then there are also events that have different tiers that both the men and women play. Right. Not necessarily in the same week. And so for some, the women, it's a higher leveled event. Where right. They get so like in Shanghai, for yeah. example. The women get paid more then and the men get paid less. Mm-hmm. And so how do you you rectify that across the board, across all levels? And I think this is what Roger Federer was trying to get at, but didn't quite get there. Mm-hmm. Because we, well, we have both said that we found Federer's comments a little, uh, like, unsatisfactory. <laughs> it's funny because there were a lot of people chattering about how, oh, Novak wants to be Roger and he wants to be this great diplomat for the sport mm-hmm. and he failed, right? And so then we have the opportunity to hear from the great and powerful Roger. And he didn't <laughs> he didn't really measure up. There are two things I want to hit on there. From my perspective, I'm looking for him or anybody to say, you know, this is just this is just bad. Right. right? Like be unequivocal in denouncing the idea that mm-hmm. men and women should be paid differently in 2016. regardless of all the other considerations within the sport, right? Mm -hmm. That's the base, big picture idea that should be led with right off the bat. Those kinds of considerations about how you actually make that happen can happen after the fact. When you present those in the same breath, you're only undercutting your own argument as far as everybody receiving what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And the, the difference for me between what Novak said and what Roger said was... Roger said, yes, I've worked for equal, I've worked for increasing prize money and, 
I knew that that would filter down to the woman and I was happy for that and I'm for equal pay. Mm. Um, and then he tried to kind of explain how it is that that would be hard to achieve based on the current structure. Right. And I that really didn't help his overall message come through. Right? I think that's where that's Well, struggled. because it was confusing. It was. And I actually needed you to sort of explain to me what he meant. You and know? it was unnecessarily confusing, which is my what I'm struggling with through this whole thing. Why is everybody adding so many words, unnecessary <laughs> <Right>. words, <laughs> to cloud and muddy what's a very straightforward issue, if that's your intent? Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, you mentioned Novak wanting to have Federer's mantle as being the great statesman, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen this thing now with for the since January, since I've been doing this week in tennis and paying extra close attention to press conferences and watching a lot of them in Australia and in Indian Wells. Novak has this approach to press conferences where he is a little bit he he doesn't it doesn't give the impression that he takes it as seriously as Roger does. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah. he always has he approaches questions with a smile. He's always you know having a joke at the ready. Right. Uh, there was that time in Australia when he was asked about something that Gail Mofis had said about going on, something going on in the locker room and Novak pivoted to make some joke about which locker room are you talking about? Because I'm pretty sure the women's locker room would be happier. Oh, something right. Like that. Would be happy to see me. You know, like these are the kinds of jokes that Roger just would not make. Right. And if you're so inclined, while I didn't think it was the biggest misstep, now looking back after Indian Wells, like you're seeing a pattern of behavior mm-hmm. that doesn't really give the impression that he he takes it that seriously. Okay, which is fine. Because he's not Roger Federer. They have different personalities. Yeah, and we could be projecting this onto him that he wants this position, right? Right, well, exactly. Maybe he has no interest. But when you then step in it, it's hard for people to give you the benefits of the doubt when you have this kind of lackadaisical approach to it. Okay, okay. Like, he was asked about Raymond Moore, and if you read the transcript... In parentheses, right before he starts speaking, is smile. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, looking at people's reactions to Roger's comments today versus Djokovic's, there's so much tribalism mm-hmm. uh, about who's fans of whom and the way that we interpret people's comments are filtered through, like, who we like, right? Yeah. And so we actually happen not to be huge fans of either Novak or Roger. No. So I feel... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not that we hate them. It's just that we're not lining right? up behind either of them. By so... me saying today on Twitter that I didn't think in any way, shape, or form that Roger's comments were nearly as bad as Novak's. Right, and so that was extremely controversial. Yeah, that because... was not coming from a place of defending Roger. And it kind of really made me really mad when I'm seeing all these people who are like, handle at RF fan forever. You know, like the, the Roger fandom <laughs> yeah. just taking it and run with it because I'm not, I'm not attacking Novak without mm-hmm. reason on it's my like, end. Hey now, hey right. now, Roger Federer's army or whatever you're you're called, like don't don't think don't that get it twisted. I am you, no, right? But to me, it's it's kind of silly to think that those those comments were the same. I I just you know it's just I I don't understand how you it can blows my read mind. them and think that they're the same. And Novak's fans want you to believe that there is this great media bias against Novak and Roger oh, and that gets, there is racism. Yeah, involved. and that Roger gets all these free passes when he says stuff that are just as bad. 
which these were not as bad. Mm. I hope I never have to be in this position, but if Rafa says something that's really outrageous, I'm going to give it to him. But we have. We have. I mean, yes. We're We're fans of Rafa. We've taken him to task about the the Davis Cup captain Uh appointment. And no, but if Rafa said what Novak said, like I would be pissed. Right. So mad. Yes, it would be very disappointing. And we talked about I'd be our hurt. last episode. I'd be deeply hurt. We've talked about our last episode when you pick favorites in entertainment or in sports and they deeply disappoint you. Mm-hmm. You know, it you take it personally. Yeah. It just makes it so difficult for the real issue at hand, which is sexism in tennis and sexism in sports. And the disadvantage, the many disadvantages that women have in life, period. Mm. This should be the focus. But instead, they're twisting what people have said to then defend their favorite. When your favorite is not the issue here. Like, Novak said something that was really bad, and he's having it Mm -hmm. from a lot of people. But it's not about him. But you don't have to defend him just because he's him. No. But the bottom line is, it's not about him. It's about what he said, and that's part of a bigger problem in tennis and society, right? Right. Now, can we talk about this absolute shit tornado that happened on Twitter on Monday? (laughs) There was a lot of good that came out of it. There there was, yeah. Nicole Gibbs is a star. She is here to fight the good fight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not only did she tear it up on Twitter on Monday... But then she showed up to the Billie Jean Chrissy press conference and offered more insight into her current thinking about her own self within this issue, right? Mm -hmm. And how she wants to continue in this vein and give us some insight too into what it's like in the locker room as a young woman on the WTA tour who wants to speak up against these issues. Mm -hmm. That was very interesting. Very interesting. So first of all, If you don't know, Nicole Gibbs is a young American tennis player. She's ranked number 74 right now. She just hit her career high last this week as of Monday. Yeah, I think she She won her first round match in Miami. She reached a round of 16 in Indian Wells. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Nicole Gibbs uh, talked about in the presser with Billie Jean King and Chris Everett about how she's met some resistance among her peers in the WTA. She's asked specific people... Can you speak to this issue from your experience? Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's getting a lot of responses like, well, my coach says that I should stay out of it. Most often that's a male coach on the WTA. Well, she said the vast majority are male coaches. But she said Um, Billie Jean asked her to give her an example. If it was a male coach and she said, actually, this time it was a, a female coach. Oh, okay. Yeah. In that press conference. And I mean, she declined to name names, obviously, which, which is fair. Um, but it was interesting not everybody's to me. as messy as Andy Murray. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but in a way, this young woman is imperiling, who knows, uh, future sponsorships. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, she is taking risks by speaking out so, so loudly and, and yeah. so forcefully. As far as the conventional wisdom would have you believe. Because I, I liken it to the the narrative that gay athletes can't thrive in professional sports because of losing their sponsorships and whatnot. I've always thought that there must be a market for the gay athlete who is successful, who wants to be political Mm -hmm. within the corporate structure. And I should hope that somebody like Nicole, if she continues to win or even stays a top 100 player, she won't see that kind of negative effect on her earnings. 
outside okay. the court. That, I mean, in that is very optimistic. In 2016, come on. You know, like, there has to be something there. Okay. But, I mean, the number 74 player on the WTA is not making money at all. You know, at that level, you're you're struggling to break even financially. And someone like Serena Williams, who's been number one for the past three years, who has 21 majors, who has many millions in her bank account, finally feels comfortable yeah. speaking out This is a very young young player it's very rare that you see somebody so young uh speaking about these things chrissy even said in that press conference how difficult it was for her to even conceptualize and speaking so articulately why'd you gotta shade her what are you talking about no nicole okay i thought you were talking oh my god (laughs) see where your mind goes (laughs) i was like wow you don't even need an invitation No, no, I reading through that press conference, I was so impressed by by Chrissy, actually, because we kind of take it for granted in the way that her career was cast in opposition to Martina, that she was just this la di da, everything is smelling roses, right, right, kind of character on the WTA tour, right? And while clearly Billie Jean and Martina suffered more in different ways, Mm. like she actually put in her hard work as well. Yes. And well, and she and Martina were really part of the first generation that benefited from Billie Jean's hard work. Well, anyway, we'll get to that. Okay. So this this Twitter shitstorm. <laughs> I mean, there were there were a lot of players involved. It, yeah. it doesn't often happen like this, that you see so much tweeting back and it forth. It started well early in the day and carried on mm. into the wee hours of the night. The other impressive thing about Nicole is that she came with her facts too, right? Like, she was clapping back with facts. Right. This wasn't just some kind of... Well, she had stats about, oh, 10 first-round retirements at the U.S. Open on the men's side. Like, she had (laughs) statistics to make her argument here. She's done her homework. Mm Mm-hmm. When people are coming at her telling her that, you know, women won't be able to handle the rigor of playing best out of five matches Mm -hmm. right and she's like well i'm here for it if any of the tournaments are willing which they're not you know it's a logistical nightmare but she's also saying that listen except at davis cup and the four majors men play best of three as well you know so how many of the really top players who play multiple best of five matches say 10 best of five Mm -hmm. matches for the year which is probably way more than anybody does play in one year right right how many people actually play more than five how many five five set set matches matches do federer and Djokovic play in a year right not that many it's usually the lower ranked players who play like two or three a year if they're Mm -hmm. lucky right who make this argument and it doesn't really it doesn't hold water at all no so she's arguing for the entertainment value of a shorter match Mm -hmm. of a best of three match and we take for granted that because men are held as the standard bearers, right? We talked about this before when people talk about tennis, they're really talking about men's tennis. Then you have to use women as a qualifier. So within that structure, it's assumed that best of five is better right? than best of three. And because the women only play best of three, that it has to be less than. Mm-hmm. But who is to say that best of three across the board for men and women wouldn't benefit tennis, period? And that I isn't the know. better format. It's it's holding everything that men do as the all the arguments you hear for why women should be paid less. It's looking at what they do in opposition to what the men do mm-hmm. and not the other the other way around. I don't know many people who actually watch like these four hour, five hour slugfests in the first round of majors. 
in like a five set uh-huh. men's match. Do you watch the whole thing? And is it like that exciting? It really is. I don't know. No. But like, is the entertainment value better than being able to see a female tennis player like show off her skills? I don't know. So let's talk about Andy Murray, who came to play. I mean, he just went off. <laughs> he starts by saying, Stacko, my man, how's things? What does the university someone go to have to do with this? Okay. Because Stacko how's... tried to use this outrageous analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Let me say, how's things was Andy Murray's version of saying, girl, hold my earrings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to beat this bitch's ass. <laughs> <laughs> because Sergio was trying to make the argument that a law student coming out of an Ivy League should be paid more than somebody who just went to some community college. I, I don't know. I don't understand. Like, I don't understand why this analogy is being made. Can we just not even give this troll That's any, a nice any credence at all? Like, okay. I, I don't understand the Ivy League argument. We didn't read the article, so we wouldn't understand it, according to Stakovsky. His thing is basically, like, if you don't get what he's talking about, you're just not smart enough. Mm-hmm. It's not that he could ever be wrong. It's just that you're stupid. Like, that's his that's his MO. And what is his education? I don't know. Like, why does he think he's that smart? This is, this is him. It's really the confidence that only a man could have. Right? <laughs> and we can say that because we're men. And so they go back and forth, back and forth, for quite a while. Yeah. And it's like, I played you in a Davis Cup match in Ukraine, and there must have been a thousand people there, Max. Oh, see, this is where it really got right. bitchy. It got really low. That's when Sergey was, like, checking if his wig was glued properly. Right. <laughs> because it was like, he is not playing right now. Like, no, like, his natural hair was coming off at that point. <laughs> Down to the follicle. Meanwhile, Laura Robson is like, I'm a bit confused by how I became involved, <laughs> but I'd rather not go to Kiev. <laughs> right. But no, the worst thing that Andy said was, I wasn't really paying attention to the crowd. I was focused on getting the W. Right. Like, Girl, <laughs> you are not playing right now. <laughs> so it was, it was uh, refreshing to see a fellow male tennis player finally call out Sergei Stakovsky because there's so much pussyfooting around him. He's an elected, you know? a re-elected member of an ATP right. council after he's had so many fuck-ups. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there are so few men who are willing right? to confront him directly. But even if you don't want to confront him in public, it seems like a, a no-brainer if you have the will to not vote him in mm-hmm. again on the council. Like, that's a very simple statement that you can make. The thing is that it turns out that there are more men on the ATP than not who basically agree with yeah. what he's saying. They're, they're really and hard. I think that is the disappointing realization through right. all of this. Yeah, we hope that there are all these men who are willing to stand up for what's right. Mm-hmm. But the majority of them are just willing to maintain the status quo and r- ride the coattails of Federer, Murray, Djokovic, right. and Nadal. Right? There are some other people who should be right. getting on they their knees. They are riding and... <laughs> the coattails. Because men's tennis is in a golden age, right? so to speak. But it wasn't about, what, 12 years ago? Right. It was in a very desperate position. In the post-Sampras Agassi era yes. when you had Hewitt 
and Roddick. I mean, they were clinging desperately to Andre Agassi. You go back to 2002, anytime between 2000 and 2003 and look at the WTA top 15. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite things to do. Right. Just pick a month, pick a week, and just go back and look what it was. But at that time, you literally had the ATP leadership reaching out to the WTA wanting to work together. Really? That's mm-hmm. so interesting. Because they were so unwilling to help the WTA in its infancy in the 70s. actually put all these tweets together into one article on Monday night, so feel free to check out sportscribe.ca and you'll see it. It's a tennis player set Twitter ablaze over sexism row. Because uh, we, we're not really going to be going through and reading you these tweets verbatim. Right. right? <laughs> That's probably not very interesting. Yeah, so, so I'll take this opportunity to do a little bit of self-promotion. Check that out. But within that whole article recapping Manic Monday, uh, John Wertheim made the analogy that Stakowski is to the ATP what Puck was to real world San Francisco. <laughs> and apart from showing John's age right, <laughs> and making us aware of our age... Oh. It was so good. And then James Blake responded and said, never saw the show, but assume Puck must have always thought he was the smartest person in the room, but never was. Mm -mm. Girl. Mm -mm. Girl. I mean, Stakowski is certainly not the smartest person when James Blake is in the room. He's not the (laughs) smartest person in Ukraine. He's not the smartest person in Europe. He's not? No. And so I discovered this, that Sergei has this talent for finding his name. When he's not tagged. Yeah. Because Wertheim did not tag him. He is like the subtweet right? investigator. And James Blake didn't tag him. And so Stakowski goes back to John's original tweet and writes question mark, question mark. Well, I mean, that's obviously a big cultural disconnect. Well, okay. It's like, really, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh-huh. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, <laughs> like, you're, who is obviously you're being shaded. Well, he knew that. But do you think that he really like just spends all day searching his last name on Twitter? He spends a lot of time on Twitter dealing with trolls. He does. He's and then very he blocks concerned. them. He's blocked me, but I have two other accounts, so... Foiled, <laughs> foiled again. Right? <laughs> Can we talk about um, Neil Harmon, like, the most pathetic loser in the world? What? Can I say that? Yes. Well, he'll probably well, you find can say us, that. because that's really all he does now, is go on Twitter and, like, reach out to people who want nothing to do with him. <laughs> I mean, Neil Harmon. I'm not mi- committing slander by saying he's a proven plagiarist and disgraced journalist. No, I, those I? were those were my words <laughs> that I wrote. I thought the they needed to be repeated. <laughs> he came out of the woodwork because Stakowski uh, quote tweeted something and said thoughts question mark question mark. Mm-hmm. You know this business of trying to present some kind of intellectual argument about something that's just really fucked up. And so Neil Harmon responds and said. An interesting few days in my old sport. How are you, my friend? My friend. Okay. <laughs> like nobody, literally nobody is sending for you right now. Nobody misses you? Well, Barry Flatman does. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I, Neil Harmon was taken down by some investigating from Ben Rothenberg a year or two mm-hmm. ago. And let me tell where you. Where it was proven that he plagiarized a bunch of stuff that he wrote. Right. Specifically for the Wimbledon program or the Wimbledon book that they produce every mm-hmm. year, right? And for somebody who touts himself as having been in journalism for 40 years, like, that's the cardinal sin. I mean, well, yeah. you're in your 50s, 60s now, like, you've had a good career, it's over. You know, you've made some money, just, just 
find something else to do. But he's now, after taking a, a vacation from tennis, <laughs> he's now trying to insinuate trying to himself claw again. his way yeah, back. That's exactly but what you he, know. As if we don't forget. His friends. As if we don't remember, I should say. <laughs> his friends are out here attacking everything that Ben Rothenberg does and calling him, uh, what, what, what did Barry Flatman call him? Uh, some like young up and cover, basically calling him Eve Harrington. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the Eve Harrington of tennis journalism. Guys, this it's not like he's lying here. This is what actually happened. The receipts are all there. Yeah. Okay. Enough about Neil Harmon. But it made perfect sense that these two would end up being bedfellows. Yeah, but are they? Miles, would did you Stokowski be... respond? I, 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 I mean, I'm blocked. I must have been oh. on my blocked account <laughs> at the time. I, did. right. I didn't follow up. But, you know, he's responding to Stokowski. Like, Harmon knows what Stokowski's position is in tennis right now. Well, like, he's course. ranked outside the top 100. He's only relevant because he's an asshole at this Basically, point. Basically, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So you're attaching yourself with this and trying to play victim together, mm-hmm. essentially. And I'm not having any of that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get into something that's been bothering me for a long time now. Okay, and is it the fact that Beyonce's album isn't out yet? Or the fact that Patti LaBelle canceled her concert? Mm-hmm. But, like, we had tickets for Aretha Franklin way back in the day, and she canceled too, remember? Yeah, remember? But she was having all those health problems back then. Yeah. Okay. Point is, like, these are some first-rate queens that we have not seen. Anyway. My mom saw Diana Ross in, like, 1979. Like, at the height of disco Diana Ross. That's pretty awesome. That's crazy. We're going to go see She also saw Michael Jackson Mm -hmm. when he was touring with Off the Wall. Like, just stop. (laughs) That's not fair. We are going to go see Diana Ross next week, which I'm dragging you screaming to, but I'm really excited. No, I'm looking forward to it, too. You are? I am, yeah. Okay. A lot of this podcast, when I was sitting down to make the notes, planning what we were going to be talking about, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, damn, this is stuff that we have talked about ad nauseum over the last year. Yeah. So loyal listeners may be feeling some deja vu. Right. And that probably will be the title of the episode. It's Deja Vu all over again. Featuring (laughs) Jay-Z. And what we're going to talk about now is why Andy Murray's Feminism Matters, which, if you do recall, was an episode title. title. (laughs) Literally the title of an episode last year. So we're at that point when we're quoting our own episode titles? Right. Okay. (laughs) And I wrote something that was an accompanying piece called Why Andy Murray's Feminism Matters. Yes. And we're back in the same situation because the bullshit in tennis is cyclical, apparently. It is. So with this hullabaloo around sexism in tennis this time around, from Raymond Moore to Djokovic to everybody having scrutiny on what players will say in press conferences in response to this, Mm -hmm. we have a lot of people pushing back against Andy Murray because of his now high position as the lone wolf voice in support of women right in tennis right from the atp Mm -hmm. these men saying you know i'm all for equal rights equal pay i support women it's not the same as what andy murray has done no like andy murray to quote another episode title do the work andy murray has done the work and he has been doing right it's been a while now right and so one of the the critiques that I've been seeing, and again, it's always to defend somebody's favorite. Well, not always. Sometimes to defend somebody's favorite, and then sometimes just out of nowhere, just because. <laughs> right. 
is to say that, well, back in 2013, Andy Murray said this and that, this and that. You know, back in so-and-so, he said mm-hmm. this and that. Right. As if to say that people aren't allowed to evolve on in their thinking. Right. Um, and so, from my perspective, he's at a place in his life where for a while now, he's been doing and saying the right things for a long time. Mm-hmm. And you may find that the praise that he's getting is disproportionate to what any old man should be getting for, you know, just being a decent human being. Mm -hmm. Fine, I give you that. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. But I've always maintained that within tennis, where the silence is so deafening, and when you have the top players, like Novak Djokovic saying what he did, and then Federer not saying enough, and whoever is to come the rest of the week... Mm not saying things in as simple terms as Andy Murray has managed to do in support of women, when it seems like such a non-starter, can we just move past adding these qualifiers to his feminism? You know, I understand resisting sort of elevating Andy over, say, women Mm -hmm. who are feminists. I get that, and I'm on board with that. Yes. Because we're not trying to say that he's doing better work than a lot of the women out here. Who have to deal with it every day. But he's literally the only advocate among active players on the ATP who are out here saying unequivocally that women deserve equal prize money. Whereas, that women deserve respect right? as well, you know? Whereas Where other, are they? Whereas other players unprompted are going the sexist route. Andy Murray, unprompted, right. is going the way of defense. Like showing their true colors Showing here. support, right? I don't know if it's good media training or what, but Andy has a mother who's actually out there doing work. Whose life's to, work is woman intense. Right. To change her small part of the world to create opportunities for young girls. Mm-hmm. You know, she's out here doing the work. Andy is a mouthpiece. Because he has a platform. But I wonder how much him not being the top dog within the top four, the big four, helps him in this scenario. Okay. Yeah. Like he's a bit of an outsider. He doesn't have to he be. He doesn't have the same pressures as Federer mm-hmm. or Nadal, where the scrutiny is that big on them from week to week. Right. That's a good point. But I think a lot of it is also his personality. He's stubborn mm-hmm. <laughs> on court, and it seems. In general, he's sort of like dour, and I don't know, he seems like somebody who's going to express himself how he wants to, and if it ruffles some feathers, that's probably even better, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I do get, in general terms, in general life, the reluctance for, for people and from women to trust men to stay the course, to not just have one or two sound bites. Mm Mm-hmm to actually be an ally for a sustained period of time and then not fuck it up in the end. Right. And I feel this way as a gay person. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm seeing re- these pop stars who say, oh, I'm so, you know, I love LGBT people. They deserve equality. Mm-hmm. And feeling that once the issue doesn't become very interesting anymore, like people get bored and move on. Or their true colors you know, will shine out at some point. We distrust allies. That is sort of the nature mm-hmm. of... That you expect a misstep is coming. Right. But to be fair, I think that Andy Murray feels these things are important in his own life. And this brings up an issue that I wanted to sort of 
hash out. We're talking about the daughters. The daughters thing, thing, you know. Let's do that because a lot of people are saying, "Oh, well, you know, Stan has a daughter. Andy has a daughter. It changes the way you see the world." Billy and 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 Chrissy talked about it a lot in their press conference. And I actually want to disagree here. Uh huh. I because it's just it's not enough for me. If you're arguing that you have respect for women because you have a mother, because you have sisters, because you have a daughter, that is so unsatisfactory. (laughs) It's like saying the only reason I respect women is because I've lived with women or because I have a woman in my family. Everybody has a mother. Like, would you But everybody had mothers back when women had no rights. Right. And plenty of men with daughters and with mothers they love very, very much Treat them are, like shit. are misogynists. Yep. You know, you can love women, but also not respect women. Yes. Which is why we've we've been taking with a grain of salt this barrage of players who will say, Well, you know, I support women, I love women's tennis or whatever, but we need to see more. Right? Right. Like, I don't know Stan Wawrinka. I don't know what his politics are. I don't know who he is. I'm inclined to be skeptical when he comes and says, you know, I think women should be paid the same or whatever it is that he said because I have a daughter. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. In the same breath, I I am going to put out there, if you have evolved on mm-hmm. these issues and it happens to be because you have a daughter and you want her to live in a better world, that's something. Yes. And if Novak Djokovic gets to a point in two years and starts to talk a lot more like Andy Murray and a lot less like Novak Djokovic, mm-hmm. I will be fully on board. Yeah, I'll I will be willing to put those things behind us, mm-hmm. just like we have with Andy Murray. Absolutely. People make mistakes, you know? But why, uh, back to your point, I just, we, we take issue with somebody saying, well, he has a son Let's just wait till he gets a daughter. Right, like he doesn't like, get it. Yelena Ristich is just supposed to sit there breeding until he becomes a feminist. <laughs> right. Right, like I don't like understand. Motherfucking Anne Boleyn in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> no, like that's not that's not enough. When as far as we're concerned, having these thoughts, these non-sexist, bigoted, misogynist thoughts, is part of being a decent, well-adjusted human being. Mm, it, yeah. it's like a base thing you know mm-hmm. i mean i don't have a wife i don't have well, a daughter no. i'll probably never have a probably daughter not our dog is a male <laughs> <laughs> yeah our only child is male but i think that that some somewhere down the line the issue is that though it's about privilege right men and straight men have interacted with the world in ways that women gay people Black people, people of color, immigrants, minorities have. Mm. They Their life experience is totally different. And getting somebody to see and acknowledge their privilege in a way that can then allow them to have difficult conversations and self-reflections, it's a it's a difficult thing to do. Don't you think that's where it all stems from? Yeah. I like was thinking about so this mu- the other There's day, so actually. much that men take for granted that they're entitled to because they're men that they don't have to think about. Mm. I was thinking about this the other day because I'm trying to figure out, like, what are you so afraid of? You know, like, there's been so much anger and, like, the the severity of it has surprised me. And I know that that's my privilege to be surprised. Because mm-hmm. if you're a woman working in sports writing, you're not surprised by no. that. Because it comes at you every day. But 
I'm trying to figure out like where is it coming from? And it's coming from fear, right? Like misogyny and homophobia. There's a reason that phobia is in the word homophobia. Yeah. It's fear. And in this case, men are afraid that their many advantages are going to be sort of clawed back and given to women. You know, like that their but lives will be... It's also something that does not operate on a conscious level all the time. No. Which was, which is what makes it so difficult. But fear is a profound emotion. Absolutely. And I think that's where a lot of this anger comes from. That our lives as men will be slightly less easy if we give things to women, you know? <laughs> I mean, just to hear you say that, it makes sense, but it sounds so fucking ridiculous. Right, right. You know? Because it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't operate on the most obvious level. Mm -hmm. But I think that's part of what's going on here. Back to the Andy Murray thing. I don't need to be showing you his resume now as to what he's done. <laughs> and I think part of the, the, the resentment toward Andy Murray is... You see Djokovic and Federer and all these people dealing with these difficult situations. And Murray, I imagine if you're somebody who is, you know, anti-Murray as a feminist, like, oh my God, here comes Murray again. Mm, right. Like, oh my God, Djokovic said this, Raymond Moore said this. Murray's just gonna, it's just gonna get worse. Murray's just gonna be like super feminist now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Murray has done the hard work and he's earned this silver platter. Or you know, at least, or at least, like, the benefit of the doubt. Right? You know? And so, if Murray feels free enough now, after two years of going through the severe media scrutiny of hiring Emily Moresmo mm. as his coach, which, if you don't remember, was quite the controversy. Right. Back when it happened. And being the figurehead of being pro-woman and being a feminist within the ATP, mm. right? He's had that role now for a while. And it's not just been all roses for him. Mm -hmm. Like he has, he has put in the time. And so now if Novak wants to step in it and then Roger not step out of it far enough mm -hmm. <laughs> and then have Andy now come in to just hit every, like win the home run derby <laughs> <laughs> and make it look so easy. That's because he's earned that position. Now, do you want to talk about very briefly kind of the arguments that are swirling about equal prize money? Okay. I'm kind of torn whether I even want to give these credence, to be honest, because our position is very clear. I mean, I don't I don't even need to, to interact with those ideas to come to the point where, you know, it's very simple. Men should be paid the same as women. Right. And so I guess the the major issue that's popped up starting earlier this week is that men generate more money, more audience, more interest. And mm -hmm. that's why they should be paid more. And so I have a, just a few counter arguments that you can sift through if you okay. like. So the first is that this is cyclical. That that's not always true. That men's tennis is not always more popular than women. And we mentioned that around 2000, 2001, mm -hmm. that was not the case. That the ATP was actually reaching out to women's tennis to borrow their star power. And number one on that list was the Williams sisters. You know, their appeal was incredible. Yes. And still is. Um, so the second thing I wanted to talk about was that in this day and age, more and more, the reason that people watch tennis is because of their favorites. And they will seek out their favorites more than the sport in general. And maybe I'm biased because we exist in like the social media world. Yeah. Maybe the casual fan is not like that. But I think there definitely are people who only watch men's tennis. 
and only oh, yeah, watch definitely. women's tennis. But fandoms are also driving yeah. the discourse online, at least, regardless of gender. Yes. You know, and so many people have a favorite man and a favorite woman, and they're going to seek out You look at any each of those. person on Twitter, tennis Twitter, and they'll tell you almost right. all the time like, who their fans are. I'm a are. Novak Genie fan. Right? I'm a Maria Roger fan. You know, and there's often a man and a woman in that mm-hmm. equation. And so we know from being at tournaments and on the tennis grounds that people aren't saying, well, let me go watch Stokowski on court two because some woman's match is being played on the grandstand and center court. You know, I'm not going to go sit in my seat because a woman's playing. Right. That's just not how it it's works like if at you, tennis tournaments. If you paid for a seat on the stadium and you don't like the matches on the stadium, mm-hmm. you'll go somewhere else. The and time, that could be the Serena's match yeah. on the grandstand. The or, time you know. that we've really seen, the times that we've really seen popularity in play at a tennis tournament is when you're rushing, as we were, to court nine to watch Nadal play doubles. Right. And Murray and Djokovic. Mm-hmm. You know, people want to see those stars. People want to see Serena on the practice court. You're, the players that you're really interested in seeing, you'll make a note to find out when they're practicing when they're playing, when you're on site, you need to know where you want to be to catch these people. Mm-hmm. And then you have people who are there just to be there. They're going to go right. watch tennis. They have their assigned seat. They'll probably sit in their assigned seat <laughs> all day and they'll watch tennis regardless of what it is. And there's the argument that's been made that the most popular and successful and profitable tournaments are the joint events. And it's not an accident. Mm-hmm. Because even if, say for example, even if there are, there are 10 really popular males players, male players and there are five women, mm-hmm. right? Those five women are practicing at times when those 10 men aren't on court, when those 10 men aren't practicing, when those 10 men aren't on, t- on TV. They're adding something to the dynamic of the experience on site and on TV in their own way. Right. At all times. You know, so... When people say that, well, you know, the men are more popular, people are more interested in men and watching men, that's A, because you're in the golden era of men's tennis right now. Mm. Enjoy it. It's not going to last. And B, society is set up to disadvantage women in this argument. Right. Women start behind the eight ball. Well, having to prove right? their worth, you know. We've talked about this before in the podcast. When girls are five years old and they're playing any kind of athletic sport with a boy of the same age, they have more physical prowess, more likely Mm -hmm. at that age, because they develop more quickly than men do, than boys do. Right. And so when a boy comes to that little athletic encounter, thinking that he's better than the girl and he's going to beat that girl, it's because he's been taught from a long time ago Mm -hmm. (laughs) that he should be better than that girl. That he is better than that girl and that boys should beat girls because boys are better than right. girls. And that throwing like a girl is, sucks. And, and then you're you're gay because you throw like a girl. Right. You know, like these are the ways that we, quite frankly, fuck up our children. And they grow into adults who behave like complete morons on Twitter and in comment sections and oh my God. professional tennis players on the ATP tour. Like this troll today said, oh, do you really think 10 year olds are thinking about sociology? Yes! You know, <laughs> yes, when a young girl thinks that she can compete on the level of a boy 
who's one foot shorter than her. Yes, that's sociology. Well, I was work. making the art. They were saying that, you know, <laughs> this person said that men are better athletes than women are. And I and he said, that's biological. It's a fact. And I said, no, it's a sociological construct. There's no fact in that at all. Mm-hmm. And then there was the argument that, you know, you know, do do you think any girls are dealing with sociology at 10 years old? And I didn't even respond well, because you're well, of abso- course they you're are. absolutely <laughs> making my point. Right. And I made a decision at that time that, you know, you and your 10 followers were not getting the benefit mm-hmm. of my response. <laughs> because, like, if I were to respond to everybody who did not have the intellectual acumen to process these thoughts, then I would do nothing in my life. No, but they're they're not prepared to hear it. No. As well. You know, not. you're wasting your breath. This is what I'm talking about not engaging because sometimes it's yeah. just not worth it. But this is something that I'm particularly not willing to engage with because I don't talk about this often, but I have a a bachelor's and master's degree in sports sociology. Mm -hmm. So, like, this is actually my training. Like, I took courses on sport in the civil rights movement, how race interacts with society and and sport, gender relations in sport, all these different sociological perspectives in which sport can be viewed. Mm -hmm. So you actually have some expertise in this area. Yeah. And it's a passion of mine. But this is not something that can translate through Twitter. The problem with sports is that, like, in sports, everybody's an expert. Everybody's an expert. So many people are unwilling to consider sport through a sociological lens. Yeah. Well, that they believe that it's separate from in politics. a genre and a an aspect of society where everything is so stats driven. There's no way that you can convince somebody that Usain Bolt, who runs a 100 meter race in 9.5 something seconds, mm-hmm. is not as good. As Shelley Fraser Price, who is a double Olympic gold medalist, multiple world champion right. from the same country, who runs, who is just such a joy to watch run, you know? Well, it's okay. This, it's... this idea of being better and deconstructing that mm-hmm. is, is something that's hard to, to, to push through the higher, faster, stronger. Right. Well, in, in track right? and field, the contrast is so stark, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the best men run faster than the best women. That That's a fact in track and field. But in other sports, it's like, what sort of attributes do you value in an athlete? And maybe you think that Serena Williams is a better athlete than, say, Tomas Berdych. Mm-hmm. Now, would she win if they played? No. no. But is that is that why you watch sports? The idea that she's not as physically strong, that she can't deadlift more than a top male athlete, is that important? And I don't think it is. No, I don't either. That's not why we watch women's sports or sports in general. And even if you think that that makes a male athlete better than the equivalent female athlete, that is not then reason for you to say that one should be paid more than the other. Well, right. It's not. Because that's not how we pay athletes. No. We don't pay athletes for their time. They don't punch a time clock. Um, Some boxing matches last like four seconds. Right, right. right? And they still get paid. Millions of dollars. They don't get paid by the second. It's just not how sports works. You don't get paid by the set. Nor should you. Because some five set matches are boring. And people are not watching. You know? (laughs) Same with some two set women's matches are boring too. Anyway, I feel like we spent long enough on these arguments. But you also wanted to talk about how equal prize money is predicated on fairness, not economics, right? Right. 
I, you know, this is where Venus is coming from. This is where Billie Jean King is coming from. We're not going to win if we make the economic argument or if we entertain these many contradictory arguments against unequal prize money. People arguing against prize money have an ideology and they're searching for anecdotes yes. to back it up. Mm-hmm. I've said this before. I'm plagiarizing which is, myself. Which is why you're plagiarizing <laughs> yeah. yourself. Which is why we think of it as such a cut and dry, no-brainer issue, not even willing to interact mm-hmm. with these with these opposing thoughts, right? Right. It's a moral argument. Mm-hmm. I believe that the moral argument has been the most successful in making strides toward equal prize money. Mm-hmm. I think that's what works. What about the people who who then say you frame it in terms of a moral argument? which only goes to affirm my position that, you know, quantifiably speaking, Mm -hmm. women aren't up to scratch with men. (laughs) You have to then bring in this extra, you know, vague kind of way of describing it to make your argument. Okay, well, my argument would be that I'm not a capitalist and I believe in regulation. Okay. And I don't think that the free market rules everything because I think that's chaos. <laughs> that That's it. I think that as a society or societies, plural, we're allowed to have cultural standards and values to which we aspire. And for me, this is one that I aspire to, the equality of the sexes, regardless of who's bringing in the most money, because that's not what I value. So that's that's it. That was a bit of a mic drop. Congrats. <laughs> I would like you to acknowledge my wingman position. Yes, that, you really you you set up me up. That. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so I know we're probably going on a long time here. This is an important episode, though. It is, yeah. And we are feeling a little bit that we didn't quite bring it in the last episode. Right. <laughs> so we're kind of trying to make up for it. Let's say I felt like the last one was adequate, but I felt like we could have done better. We're still a little bit in vacation mode, maybe. That's true. (laughs) Now, I am so excited and so energized by this press conference with Billie Jean and Chris Everett and Nicole Gibbs, the next generation. Right. You know? And Billie was so intent on including that next generation. It was so, it made me feel so warm inside. She's so affirming and empowering. I, th- I thought to myself, she would make the perfect teacher. In a sense, she is a teacher. She absolutely in is. In tennis circles. But can you imagine having Billie Jean King as your middle school teacher? <laughs> right? Like giving you those yeah. formative years of instruction for life. Right. Would you ever forget that? Right. Like so generous in spirit and the, kind yeah. and willing to withstand so much bullshit from people. For the bigger mm-hmm. picture and the greater cause. This woman is a real life hero. Yes. You know, it's so, it's really crazy to think that this woman, along with eight others, basically invented modern women's tennis, but also changed the feminist movement forever. And she's still here. Yeah. And she's still working. And she's still bossing it up. And, and she has the patience of Job. Right interacting with men who are digging their heels in and sort of denying the force of history, the force of progress. She has patience and she has a real belief in education and dialogue. Because the things that we think that she shouldn't be putting up with, she had to put up with back in the day to get anything done. Right. 
So what's happening now, it's like, well, I can deal with this. Right. You wouldn't believe the bullshit I had to deal and with. And that's some of the stuff that she let us know in this right. press conference. <laughs> Regarding Billie Jean King's politics, I don't necessarily ascribe to those in my everyday life. Mm-hmm. But I do see how they work within tennis and within a corporate structure and a professional sporting structure to be able to affect change. Right. But in my right. everyday personal life, I don't have that kind of patience to be educating people to go the extra mile to let them know how the world works and how things work. Right. right? Like, well, her worldview is like a very optimistic politic, mm-hmm. you know, that people are coming to the table with, uh, well, like fairly open minds and can be sort of enlightened. And then through a dialogue, we can come to a compromise, right? And that she like, feels happy to do the enlightening. Right. I don't feel happy about enlightening. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm I would say... I'm very jaded at this point I'm in my more life. cynical yeah. than she is. Which goes to show that we are not the people to be in positions of power to try and effect these changes, right? Because we don't have that kind of patience. <laughs> right. Because it's proven to be necessary. Or that skill or that charisma. Mm-hmm. That temperament. Yeah. And which is why she should be appreciated even more. Right. And so... Just a few of the little tidbits, uh, the little anecdotal things that I loved hearing about. Chrissy and Billie Jean kind of just chatted to the press before they started as, uh, answering questions. So you got a lot of interesting stuff about their history as friends and colleagues. Mm-hmm. And Chrissy admitted that she was intimidated by Billie Jean when they first met. Chrissy was, what, 16, mm-hmm. 17? She was a child. She, all of her decisions were being made by her father. She really didn't know anything about politics. So Billie Jean's brashness and her persona. Yeah. And her politics were intimidating to her, which I get. One thing that stood out for me from that press conference, Chrissy was saying that one week she and Billie played in the, in a final of a tournament, right? Mm -hmm. There were the one and two seeds. And the first week Billie Jean won easily. And then the following week, they played in the final again, and Chrissy won easily. And she was thinking to herself, well, how did this happen? You know, she just beat me so easily last week. And then come to realize, Billie Jean, that same day, had flown from another city. It was probably somewhere near New York, Mm. to then go play in Florida. She went and had meetings all day in, in New York, flew back to Florida in time to get to the match, the final of this tournament. To not be able to warm up, but just take the court and then lose easily. Right. right? She was there trying to get sponsors. Sponsors for the, for the new tour. And Chrissy had no idea about this. And when she found out, you know, she was like, oh, wow. You know, that's why, you know, I, she lost right. so easily today. And then after that, after that same night, Billy, Billie Jean and her then husband took Chrissy out for ice cream. To Dairy Queen. To Dairy Queen. <laughs> your favorite spot. Right. Uh, Can yeah. you imagine? Can you imagine being a fly in the wall during those times in women's tennis. Um, well, they like said the stories that, that these women have. They both said it was for them the greatest time in tennis ever. That the women were there was such camaraderie among these women who were opponents week in and week out because they were sort of working in the service of something bigger, you know. Yeah. And Chrissy said that you know she chose the USTA instead of the WTA. And they were at odds in the early 70s. The USTA threatened to ban the women of the original nine from even playing the U.S. Open. And Chrissy said, like, my father was making my decisions. 
She said, I was conservative. <laughs> you know, she didn't know. She went with what was easy. Yeah. And so to, I was so impressed by Chris Everett in Her this tender. context. Yeah. Because, yeah, it, I feel like it gave a better picture of who she is and and sort of where she comes from. And not what she's been presented as in tennis history. As uh, yeah. the, the face of... Well, as America's sweetheart. Yeah. You know? And maybe in she... In contrast to, to Martina Navratilova as a, as a con- mm. convenient narrative and point of comparison for this great rivalry that they had. Right. right. There, there does seem to be more than we get to hear. Yeah, there definitely is. And Billie Jean obviously saw something in Chrissy because she said, when Chrissy was very young, when you retire, I want to see you as the president of this organization, mm-hmm. of the WTA. <laughs> and Chrissy said, I barely graduated high school. How, like, I don't know how to be the president <laughs> of something. <laughs> and she went on to be the president with lots of help from Billie Jean behind the scenes, mm. according to them. Like, this is the kind of camaraderie that you would be totally shocked at because of how women are depicted in pop culture. Right. As never being able to work together and be friends and powerful women always having to be at their throats. Mm -hmm. You know, these are some of the most powerful women in sporting history. Uh, And they were all that they had for each other. Mm -hmm. And when you read about the friendship between Martina and Chrissy, that just adds to, you know, Mm -hmm. this... This is a very special generation of women. Yeah. And Billie Jean is everybody's mother well grandmother now <laughs> but i Venus, believe venus is the mother now yeah. and billy jean is the grandmother and but i believe that the current era is a very special group of women as well mm-hmm. you know because these are women who are finally finally thanks to billy jean thanks to venus thanks to martina seeing the benefits of what they fought for And Serena and Caroline and Victoria are showing that women can be friends and be great competitors as well. You know, these sexist narratives. Because guess what? Andy Murray and Sergei Stokowski were the bitchiest queens of the week. Okay, (laughs) not any of these women. (laughs) Like they're the ones coming for each other. (laughs) So if I may, I want to delve into the political just one more time. Okay. You know, and I know we're not keeping it very light this episode, but this is important. I find it interesting that a lot of the male players would rather blame women for some of the real problems that are facing them. You know, there are huge disparities in pay. Within men's tennis. Within men's tennis. Between the number one and, say, the number 50. Mm -hmm. You know, and the fact that once you get into the upper areas of the top 100 it's very difficult even to break even to make zero dollars you know yeah and so it's disappointing but not surprising that these men would rather blame equal prize money for women than actually fight for a more equitable distribution of money on their own tour on their own yeah you know and maybe stakovsky is doing that behind the scenes and i know he's talked about that before but like come on you know the people who hold the purse strings who control the money they want you to be fighting amongst yourselves they don't want you to take aim at the people in power like that's how this works you know they would rather you be sniping at the women that's how capitalism works but exactly but also it goes to show you how short-sighted they are 
and how short-sighted men's tennis has been for 40-odd years since Billie Jean King reached out mm-hmm. to try and support the men in their boycott of Wimbledon, and they didn't even respond. Right. right? They had from no that zero time, interest. From around 1973, the ATP has been ignoring women's tennis mm. as something that, as an entity that could strengthen their tour well, together. Until in 2001, they need the star right? power. But you have all these men struggling in the nether regions of the rankings. Mm-hmm. And they're looking to women as the reason why money is being taken out of their pockets. Right. And it never once occurs to them that maybe the answer is that the ATP and the WTA should join forces in some way, shape, or form. And or fo- form a powerful players' union. Like right. These are not things that occur to them. Instead, they resort to this base-level sexist bullshit. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? I mean, the, the two tours... The two associations have similar goals in mind, don't they? One would think. Can you imagine if they had joined forces in the 1970s? I mean... the most powerful sporting entity in the world. Possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from the NFL, of course. Or the Olympics. Or FIFA. But I imagine their interests line up a lot more than they think. And like we talked about last episode, even falling short of a union... Even if like the two associations were joined, imagine the sort of bargaining power that they would have with sponsors and with tournament directors. They are the product. Right. They're the ones that drive the tennis market. And so together, they could pretty much accomplish anything they wanted. Mm-hmm. But it's a matter of getting their interests on the same page. Right. And clearly, the interests and the betterment of women and women's tennis is not in the interest of... A majority of men's (laughs) tennis and men's players. And certainly not the ATP. No. Because when something heinous happens, the ATP is depending on its players to stick their neck out and say something about it. Just like, I I read something in reference to the NBA. Like when someone says something horribly homophobic, they expect one of the players to kind of take the risk of making a statement. You know, because the the association itself doesn't have an interest in putting itself out there like that. Mm-hmm. And so the point is, like, change doesn't really come from the top. It comes from the players. Right. Like, Billie Jean King was a player who was imperiling her own career and made many sacrifices and probably could have won many more majors had she concentrated only on tennis. Right. You know? Margaret Court's over here reaping the benefits. Oh but God. she is not... She was not interested in the politics. She was, but just, she'll play those Grand Slam tournaments. With she'll that money. win those Australian Opens. You know? Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the late sixties, early seventies, she was still cleaning up. Uh-huh. But she was reaping the benefits of a women's tour. Yes, you know, there's been a lot of negative energy in tennis that's consumed us the last few days. So let's end this episode with some affirmation. let's give big ups to nicole gibbs you are one to watch Mm -hmm. you are doing big things don't let any of those other women in the locker room dissuade you from owning your voice and your perspective and keep doing what you're doing because if nobody else appreciates you we appreciate you like what you did this week was so life-affirming 
and you are giving me the inspiration to get a bitch together <laughs> to gather somebody if they need it you know big ups to andy murray we've loved you for a long time we'll continue to love you i still don't necessarily love your tennis but i'm here <laughs> for everything about you off the court okay big ups to serena williams snapchat we have her bare, this green has been, hair this has been probably the the episode we've mentioned serena and venus the least i know can you imagine and we've really neglected and we didn't talk about rafa either no this is the least williams rafa episode this is how like single-minded we are right right but big ups to serena's green hair it looked amazing i wish she would have kept it right and big ups to serena's taco obsession because (laughs) i get how it how it feels to get on a single track mind about a certain type of food yeah, you cereal every night. Yeah. And I do have to say, I really disagree about Toaster Strudel. I think they suck. And Pop-Tarts is way better. But apparently the rest of Twitter disagrees with me. So I'm not sure I've ever had a Toaster Strudel, so I can't. Yeah, so just in. keep it that way. You're not missing anything. Okay. Big up to Billie Jean King. For everything. Because there's nothing that we can say or do to give you the appreciation that you deserve for everything that you've sacrificed in your career mm-hmm. and lifetime for the benefit and betterment of women's tennis, women, men, and life in general. <laughs> like your biography will not be fully written decades after you've mm-hmm. left this earth. Yes. And that was never more clear than this week. And big ups to our dog Vince, because his birthday's coming up, girl. <laughs> he's gonna be nine. He's old. He's a he's an elder statesman of this yes. household. Without, like, the dignity, though. No. (laughs) Not quite. Okay, I've heard of beagles that are living to, like, 15 these days. It is a brave new world in veterinary medicine. (laughs) (laughs) He's still very, very energetic and spry and acts like a puppy. And as we say back home, ongerbelly. Yeah, he's... He's so crazy. Probably he's actually like on the kitchen counter as we speak, (laughs) licking the plates that we just ate from. Not because we don't feed him. No. And it's not our fault that we have a skinny beagle. Like <laughs> beagles who are nine, the majority of them are heifers. Okay. Yeah, you have to control their diets. They are susceptible to serious health issues when they get older if they're overweight, and we've been very mindful of that. Yeah. So big ups to Vince, and I guess that brings us to the end. Yeah, this might be our longest episode ever. Thanks for listening. <laughs> well, we'll see what we gets felt, cut. <laughs> we felt it was very important. That we record this episode and we hope that you've enjoyed it, that you've gleaned something from this episode. Or that you found common ground, perhaps. This notion of coalition building Mm -hmm. that's part of our ethos Mm -hmm. on this podcast. And if if there was stuff that you were wondering and thinking about following this whole brouhaha in tennis, hopefully we've been able to clarify something or made you think... A little bit more about something, you know? Mm-hmm. And, a, oh, sorry, go ahead. And also, if you're a troll and you've made it to this point in the episode, thank you so much. Right. Because we got a troll last time who who was able to reference, like, a lot of the episode. And called us regressive idiots. Yeah. I quite enjoyed it. But misspelled regressive. <laughs> sorry about it. They also called us retards, which is not nice. No. You can't use... You can't say that anymore. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like it was ever okay, but... <laughs> 
it felt like a bit of an accomplishment to get a full-on well, troll. I have always said that you're nothing until you have a troll. Right. And, like, this troll actually listened. And, like, and the reasons for which they said we were awful were, were the exact reasons that we're proud of this podcast. Right. And the reasons why we do this podcast. So your entire mission that you set forth failed. So, like, oh, my God, thank you for listening. Right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, give us a review on iTunes. My name's Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at SportsCribeCA. And I'm James at ElliotJMR. Two L's, two T's. And the podcast can be found on Twitter as well, at TheBodyServe. Till next time. <laughs>